Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, there's a family barbecue with a twist in casting on stage now at Black Theater Troupe in Phoenix. Scene one is played by a white cast. Scene two is played by a black cast. You just get two very different views on how the situation would play out. Plus, a prolific Arizona mystery novelist has a recent offering from her Scottish bookshop series. There's just something magical about Scotland, no matter how you think of it. And a bookstore in Scotland just seems like the perfect place to be in the entire world. But first, New Mexico author Melody Groves has delved into the life of one of the most famous outlaws in American history. William H. Bonney, better known as Billy the Kid, was often thought to have killed over 20 people during his time. But Groves contends in a new book, Before Billy the Kid, that's an over-exaggerated figure. Groves developed a love of cowboys and outlaws at a young age. I grew up in southern New Mexico and moved around until I was about five and came back. And I was just fascinated with cowboys. And we lived not on a ranch or a farm or anything, but we were out in a rural area of Las Cruces. And we had seven pecan trees in the, the yard And um, there were horses and cattle all around. And uh, I remember my dad had a friend who would come by on his horse. And it was 17 hands, which to a five and six year old, it was huge. Yeah, absolutely. And then people later told me, well, that was a big horse. I mean, well, it was a darn big horse. My very first boyfriend came to visit on his horse. So I was kind of around cowboys. I took horse riding lessons from Miss Rodeo, New Mexico, and things like that. So it was just kind of part of my blood. It's really interesting. Um, I have some experience with horses, but that's from growing up in the Midwest and particularly living some time in Kentucky. And that is definitely a big horse. The reason why we wanted to talk to you (laughs) is because you Mm -hmm. have a new book called Before Billy the Kid, The Boy Behind the Legendary Outlaw. And I was just really surprised looking into this about some of the things that people have gotten wrong over the years. In a description about the book, It says that purple prose writers began chronicling the exploits of Billy as early as the late 1870s. I've never heard that term, purple prose writers. What does that mean? Oh, those are the guys who just embellish to make it bigger than life. Uh, You know, Billy didn't kill just one person. He killed 10 at a time with his six shooter and things like that. They would just always make it bigger because, it's frankly, it sold more papers and more copy. That's that's why they would do it. So you're saying it was fake news back in the day? Absolutely. Yes. There, and there might have been a shred of truth to it, but pretty much it was the sunsets were brighter than they have back east. The people were wilder, which probably was very true. You know, it was just an amazing time. And these journalists took advantage of it because there really truly was very little law here in the West. And, you know, other people took advantage of that. And so the journalists took advantage of that and and kind of embellished. 
Well, it's interesting that you explore the early part of William H. Bonney, known as Billy the Kid, in his life. And I think there's a lot of things that folks just do not know. For instance, he loved to sing and dance. He did. He always um, sang and danced, even pretty much until the, the day he died. As a child, his mother loved to dance. She was Irish. She would go to as many dances as she could. She sang a lot. I'm sure that he picked that love up from the mom because he was very close to his mom, but he would sing and dance and he would accompany her to all these different dances uh, first in Santa Fe when they lived there for a few months. And then in silver city when they lived there for about a year and a half. And he really enjoyed the, the Mexican style music that just spoke to his soul. And of course his mother's Irish So between the two, he was always dancing and singing. They said he had a beautiful tenor voice. He played harmonica, which people don't really know. He uh, supposedly played piano, but there's some discussion about whether he played the piano or banged on the piano, (laughs) as those of us who don't understand piano tend to do. His favorite song was Turkey in the Straw, and he called it the chicken song or the Guyana song because he spoke Spanish fluently. So he called it the Guyana song. Then after the Guyana song, when he heard Silver Threads Among the Gold, that became his favorite song. And he would even sing it when he would go out on a raid to wrestle cattle and things like that. He sang it all the time. You alluded to this uh, just a bit ago about the number of people that he was accused of murdering or just shooting. And I think some people have the number close to two dozen, but you say that's just not likely. What is a more likely number? Four is much more likely. And how did you arrive and at that conclusion? The first one we know of for sure, because there were tons of eyewitnesses, was Wendy Cahill over in Arizona. Now, Billy was... 1516, I believe it was. Wendy Cahill was a bully to the maximum, and he got his name Wendy because he was always blustering and shooting his mouth off. He was a blacksmith. And the problem was Billy was small. He always was small. He was five foot seven, not incredibly strong, but you know, he's strong enough. But this blacksmith was a big bully and kept bugging Billy, would do whatever he could to, to bug him. And Billy loved clothes. He was a clothes hound, a clothes horse, I should say. He really enjoyed dressing nicely. And one day he was able to get some store-bought clothes and he had a nice little bowler hat and he had a gun, which was unfortunate or fortunate. He didn't have enough money for a holster, but he stuck the gun in his pants belt. This was over in Arizona and Wendy was, they were both in a saloon and Wendy started really pushing Billy around and ended up on top of Billy. They were shoving each other and calling each other's names and things like that. And Billy was able to get the gun out and shoot the guy. There's no doubt who did that. I mean, there were tons of eyewitnesses, but everybody said it was justified. He should have done it earlier. And if Wendy Cahill hadn't been killed right then, it would have been a few weeks later. So we know of that one for sure. Then for sure, we know... Bob Ollinger, who was one of the deputies in Lincoln, who had been, again, harassing Billy for weeks. And this is the one that Billy shot as he was coming, running back from lunch. He also shot the other deputy, James Bell, 
because he needed to get away. And he said he hated to do it, but he had to get away. I think for sure we can say three, probably four. Melody Groves is author of numerous titles, the latest before Billy the Kid, the boy behind the legendary outlaw. Melody, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word. Thank you. You can find out a bit more about Melody Groves and Before Billy the Kid on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, there's a family barbecue with a twist in casting on stage now at Black Theater Troop in Phoenix. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Hi, it's Phil Latzman, and instead of skimming, scrolling, swiping, liking, commenting, tagging, texting, unmuting, replying, retweeting, and refreshing, you could just listen. It's a morning edition from KJZZ and NPR. Every morning from 5 until 9 on 91.5. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. You have your favorites. Oh, man, my favorite mug. And maybe it's about time to treat yourself to a new favorite. Mugs and t-shirts for you and the family are at shop.kjzz.org. So what are you waiting for? Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Barbecue is the latest offering from Black Theater Troupe in Phoenix. The play is directed by Ron May and runs until November 6th. It's a comedy that centers on the O'Mallory family's struggle to intervene in the drug-addicted life of one of their own. May has been among the Valley Theater world for a long time, but like so many, is a transplant to Arizona. I'm a Chicago boy originally and moved out here to go to ASU, and I have now officially been in Arizona longer than I lived in Chicago, so I, I don't know what that means anymore. I am the founding artistic director for Stray Cat Theater. We're going into our 21st season. We just opened, and so I've been around the Valley doing theater quite a bit for the last two decades or so. This is only my second time working at Black Theater Troupe. I was honored when David asked me. This is a more outrageous show than they normally do. <laughs> so he knew where to find me. Yeah, and as far as your comment about Chicago, I would say you don't have to put up with those winters. That's what it means. Because I'm from the yeah. Midwest originally as well, and I'm sure glad I don't have to. <laughs> I, I do not miss it. <laughs> and you're speaking, of course, of David Hemphill. This play, Barbecue, which is written by Robert O'Hara, is set at uh, one of the most singular family of all events, which is a barbecue. But... This is a pretty dysfunctional family, right? Yes, very much so. The entire thing is pretty much couched. Anyone who's ever seen the TV show Intervention is going to sort of know what they're in for. The barbecue that's being thrown is, in fact, the family's way of sort of tricking uh, one of the family members that they, they want to perform an intervention on. And her name is Barba, but she goes by Zippity Boom. That's her nickname. <laughs> yeah. Who is she and how did she get that nickname? Who she is is a huge mystery. You, you wind up sort of putting the pieces together through most of Act One because you hardly see her. So you only have a bunch of people talking about what she's like. The Zippity Boom nickname comes basically from what happens to her once she does her drug of choice, which is either depending on who you're asking and what time of day it is, it's either alcohol, methamphetamines, or crack. Wow. So she's what we would definitely call a hot mess. Yes. And her, rel <laughs> yeah. her relatives are just tired of it. You know, they're tired of her being strung out and uncontrollable. And I think a lot of 
folks in the audience will be able to relate to a family member or a close friend, perhaps even a parent in that regard. How does this play out in the plot? It's all pretty much cranked up to 11. The thing that's really fun about it is that the family may very well be, I mean, we don't know because we, we don't get to meet Barbara until later in the show, but the family may well be each independently in need of interventions much more desperately than Barbara is between the various addictions that they have. There's one of them that's a raging alcoholic that drinks throughout the entire act before Barbara gets there. Uh, one is a chain smoker. Uh, one is smoking pot and <laughs> and getting drunk through the whole thing. One's sort of drunk on power. But what you wind up seeing in Act One is it takes place in four consecutive scenes. They all happen in basically real time. They skip a little bit of time in between them. Scene one is played by a white cast. Scene two is played by a black cast. Scene three is played by a white cast. And then scene four goes back to the black cast. They all play the same characters. It is the same family and it's the same story. You just get two very, very different views on how the situation would play out depending on ostensibly what race the family is. I was going to ask what the playwright Robert O'Hara might have had in mind in creating that convention because I think it's very unique. The play twists and turns all over the place. I don't want to give too much away, but I will say that it brings up sort of questions of of how do we expect white people to deal with addictions? How do we expect black families to deal with addictions? What is it when when we see a black family dealing with an addiction, how far can they go before we go, oh, that's a character or that's a stereotype? And to that end, the same with any white family. How far would they go before we say, mm, that's not believable anymore? And which one would we allow to go further? And it sort of makes you ask, why would you allow one to go further than the other if you would? That's a, a lot of intriguing questions you may not have thought of. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And as a director and sort of putting your mind in the head of Robert O'Hara, of course, we should say this is a comedy, in fact. But yeah. what do you think some other takeaways for audiences might be? What do you hope and, and what did he hope by addressing some of these prevalent themes? I think the biggest thing is that sort of question of why are we as a people so drawn to other people suffering for entertainment? I mean, Intervention is a show that, regardless of your race, it's hugely popular. I mean, you only watch things that you enjoy watching. I've certainly watched several episodes of it. I know people who have. It sort of just brings this question, of why is it that our entertainment has to be so filled with other people's suffering? And really, the more they suffer, the likelier, the better the show is going to do. And so, he, I mean, he really goes for broke in this. And it's kind of like, well, how far can we push this? <laughs> like, If you want to see two families really go through it, we're going to go as far as we can. Yeah, and it's close to that concept of schadenfreude, which is taking pleasure in other people's pain. Not exactly the same, but sort of in that same family. And that's right. what barbecue is about, family at the end of the day. Ron May directs the show for Black Theater Troupe, and it runs now until November 6th. Ron, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word. Thank you. You can find out a bit more about Barbecue and the rest of the Black Theater Troop season on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, a prolific Arizona mystery novelist has a recent offering from her Scottish bookshop series and also a new novel from another series on its way soon. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. 
Hey, it's Tiara. On All Things Considered, from KJZZ News and NPR, we hit pause on the news cycle for you, so you can get a handle on what you need to know and why it matters. Listen every afternoon from 3 until 6, on air, online, and on your phone. You want to know, and you can rely on KJZZ. The affordability index is at a low point for Phoenix. Only 22% of homes sold in July to August in Phoenix are actually affordable for a family making $90,000 a year. KJZZ is the Valley's news leader and your source for a variety of information. Listen to KJZZ on air, online, and on your phone. Did you know two out of every three NPR listeners prefer to purchase products and services from public radio sponsors? You can see the benefits of becoming a KJZZ corporate sponsor at sponsor.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our final guest on this episode has a recent offering from a widely popular series and another from a separate series out in December. Paige Shelton is prolific, to say the least, and her latest in the Scottish Bookshop series is called The Burning Pages. She currently makes her home in southern Arizona. My husband and I moved down here in 2015 after he got a job, but we've tried to get to Arizona for a long time. We lived in Salt Lake City, Utah, and in the early 90s, we came down to Tucson to look for some locations for Blimpy restaurants, which is what my husband was doing at the time. And we had a couple locations nailed down, and then the deals just kind of fizzled. And so back we went to Utah, and then my parents had also moved down here in the 90s. So it, it it's a place that we'd always wanted to be. Uh, a place my dad hitchhiked to when he was a kid. So he always had stories <laughs> of, you know, down Route 66 and from Missouri. Um, so it was someplace we always wanted to be. And we finally ended up getting here in 2015. You are author of numerous series. And I wanted to begin with the latest in your Scottish bookshop mystery series entitled The Burning Pages. It came out earlier this year and it's set in a rare and used book and manuscript shop in Edinburgh, Scotland. The central character, Delaney Nichols, is a laid-off museum archivist. Maybe you could talk briefly about why you wanted to center the series in Scotland and just a bit more about Nichols as a character. I think that the series and the characters in the books are kind of personifications of the dreams I had when I was a kid of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. I never even went that direction. I, I wasn't an archivist um, and I never did work in a bookstore, but I always wanted to write. But there's just something magical about Scotland, no matter how you think of it. And a bookstore in Scotland just seems like the perfect place to be in the entire world. Also, I kind of wanted to take a trip to Scotland and maybe have it as a tax write-off. So that kind of worked out. (laughs) (laughs) And so as far as Delaney Nichols is concerned, how would you describe her? She is definitely a Kansas girl, and I I grew up mostly in the Midwest, so I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on a Kansas girl. She's even less naive than I was growing up um, (laughs) in that Midwestern world, and and so she's much more brave than I was. And so she takes this job as the result of seeing an online ad for this job in this bookstore across the sea. And of course, she cannot resist, and she interviews with the owner of the book store Edwin and he offers her the job and off she goes and her adventures only began there her life is one mystery after another right there in Grass Market in Edinburgh the book is a mystery with a pretty adventuresome plot and it's referred to by the term cozy something that I was unfamiliar with but one of my colleagues said think murder she wrote is that a, a good analogy and how would you describe the term 
It is a good analogy. Um, it's a cozy mysteries are also known in the mystery world as traditional mysteries. Agatha Christie, um, the Cat Who books. In fact, when I first got my agent back in 2008, I was talking on the phone with her and she said cozy mysteries. And, and I had never heard the term before myself. So I said, oh, I but, you know, I wanted this agent and I'm like, I'm not going to let go of this. So I'm like, oh, I love cozy mysteries. And then I hung up the phone and I ran to Barnes and Noble and I said, could somebody please show me what a cozy mystery is. And uh, a, a bookseller took me right to this section with Agatha Christie again and the cat who books and, and, and cozy mysteries turned out to be amateur sleuths in some form. Uh, sometimes the traditional mysteries had, had professional sleuths, but amateur sleuths with hooks of some sort. So in my Scottish bookshop, the hook is the bookshop, but there's also knitting as a hook, baking as a hook, libraries as a hook, bookbinding as a hook. There are all kinds of hooks in the cozy mystery world, and, and they are a genre all to themselves. What's the hook in the burning pages? What is it she's investigating and trying to solve? In the burning pages, uh, she is invited to a Burns night dinner every year on January 25th. Uh, people all over the land, mostly Scotland and Canada, actually celebrate uh, Robert Burns's birthday with a Burns night dinner. So you go to this extravagant dinner where they have they read "Ode to a Haggis." They pipe in Scottish bagpipes. If if they don't have real bagpipes, they bring in the haggis. And Robert Burns wrote ode to a haggis and so they they read these poems and they have this dinner so in at the beginning of the burning pages delaney is invited to a burns night dinner and she takes her co-worker hamlet with her hamlet is a young man who is artistic and and a sweet soul a beautiful soul and looks like william shakespeare so they go to this dinner and it seems like there are some ulterior motives for her being invited. And halfway through the dinner, she's upset and she and Hamlet are storming out because they were clearly being used for something that they didn't think they should be being used for. But that night, that Burns house where the dinner was actually burns down and there's a body inside. And maybe things point to Hamlet as being part of the bad guys. So Delaney has to kick it into high gear to solve all the mysteries and to rescue her friend Hamlet. Well, we certainly don't want to spoil the ending. So let's switch to another book that you have coming out in December. And it is yet another installment in a series called Alaska Wild. Briefly, what's the premise of that mystery novel, which is definitely not a cozy, as I understand it is not a cozy, which uh, again, with the cozies, uh, they're a little less graphic. In my Alaska wild, things are a little more graphic, a rougher language used. But the premise of this one is there's a thriller writer, Beth Rivers, who was kidnapped by one of her stalker fans down in Missouri and held in his van for three days. She escaped the van, but decides she wants to run away. So she finds this remote location in Alaska. Uh, I called it Benedict. It's loosely based upon Gustavus. And uh, she she heads up there to hide away and her her life is now around the mysteries of this wilderness and this crazy Alaska town where the quirky characters are leading the way and murders still happen out there. 
at the same time, she's trying to recover from her trauma and she's always looking back over her shoulder. In Winter's End, uh, in this particular installment, it's the fourth in the series and she's getting better. She's not quite as paranoid. Um, but then they have something called an annual death walk where they meet downtown at the end of winter to make sure everyone's alive, make sure they survived the winter um, because you can get locked away for a long time up there and not everyone shows up. So some people are set out to try to find who's missing and, and see what's going on and bodies appear and we must figure out and solve those crimes too. Coming up though in December. Sounds intriguing. Paige Shelton is author of many books. The latest in the Scottish Bookshop Mystery Series is out. It's called The Burning Pages, and the latest in the Alaska Wild Series is on the way in December. Paige, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. You can find out a bit more about Paige Shelton on our website, word.kjzz.org. Portions of Word have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks so much for listening to Word. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.